Welcome to Black Agenda Radio, where we provide news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly. Coming up, a real estate development and the need for affordable housing, and immigrant worker rights at the People's Summit for Democracy. But first, Vocal New York seeks an end to qualified immunity in New York State. Qualified immunity is the legal doctrine that shields public officials accused of civil rights violations. Police and corrections officers face limited repercussions for acts of brutality, even for those that end in death. There is pending legislation before the state Senate and assembly that would end qualified immunity. We're joined by Kelly Young, who is the civil rights campaign coordinator for Vocal New York, and Lukey Forbes is a community organizer for Vocal New York in Albany. The general sentiment at the state level is like, it's not over until it's over. Um, We have garnered a great deal of support in both the Senate and Assembly. Um, And right now it, it comes down to putting pressure on state leadership. So that Senate Majority Leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, and um, Assembly Speaker Kahisi. Um, and so, you know, our, chan- our chances comes down to how um, seriously our state legislators are taking, are taking this issue. And we know we have amazing champions on the state level. We know that Assembly Speaker Hasty is in support of this bill. We know that Senate Majority Leader um, Stuart Cousins' son has been the subject of police violence. And so, you know, they, they know the issue, they know the importance of the issue. It all comes down to um, whether or not they're aligned with us on how urgent it is to address it. And uh, Luki, can you tell me um, about what you're hearing from the community about your efforts? Are, uh, I'm assuming the community are in support. Yes, the community is in support of this bill across the border, even in one of the um, hardest senators to really get in support of the bill, Senator um, Solange and Hinkshi, there are there's actually a poll done in Senator Solange's district that shows that her constituents are 100 percent with it. Um, also, even in Green Correctional Facility on May 3rd, there was an allegation of um, correctional officers recently just assaulting someone and even urinating on them in the jail. So there's definitely a large call from the community to pass these, this bill, like urgently, especially because this is a bill that not only deals with the violations of rights, but sometimes those violations end up in the ultimate brutality or even death in some cases. So just passing this bill not only li- allows for people to actually seek accountability, but it also allows for the changing of culture in the overall system. So you really see a large call from the community to really prioritize this bill and really pass it this year. Uh, Kelly, tell us how qualified immunity works. How does it how does it impede justice? Tell us what happens that qualified immunity does that keeps uh, victims or surviving family members from getting justice in cases of brutality? Absolutely. So right now in our state, if you have a civil rights um, claim that you wanna bring against a public official, um, it happens through a 1983 claim. 
in practice, as you mentioned, so qualified immunity is a defense that government officials can use when they're being sued for a civil rights violation. So that could be something that happens in a police interaction on the street, something that happens in our jails, in our prisons. Um, and, and just to note that qualified immunity is more than just police and corrections, but extends to other public officials. And so um, a civilian brings a, a suit in civil court uh, and in practice, qualified immunity has become this unjust burden on victims and the families of victims. And it requires that they find an identical prior case, also known as clearly established law, um, that fits the exact facts of the case that they're bringing. And so this creates an insurmountable barrier to address justice and has become has given a pass to public officials to violate our rights. And so the courts may say that a rights violation has occurred, but still grant qualified immunity um, and throw the case out simply because a victim could not find an identical prior case. Um, and other times the courts may even, may not even ask or answer if a constitutional violation has occurred, um, which leaves us in this really insidious and vicious cycle that never creates new precedent. And that new precedent is what we would need um, in order to protect our rights moving forward. Um, and so what this bill does is just creates a complete workaround and a remedy on the state level um, for victims and families of victims to bring um, a civil rights claim in state court and really bypass um, that federal system altogether. So let's say, and so I think the, the precise facts are important. So there have been cases where someone has, is in the midst of a mental health crisis, has doused themselves with gasoline. Um, the police officers are aware of this. They are being instructed not to tase this individual because gasoline is highly flammable. Um, the taser creates a charge. Um, the police officers tase this person, setting them on fire. The person dies as a consequence. Um, the family of that person who dies um, brings a, a civil rights claim saying that the police officers violated that their loved one's civil rights when they tase them knowing that they had been doused in gasoline and the likelihood of them catching fire is almost um, 100%. When you bring this case in civil court, law enforcement says qualified immunity attaches. What the family of that loved one has to prove is that the law enforcement actor had to have known that their action was unconstitutional because the exact same facts happened in a case that had been already been decided. And so it would need to be in a previous case, someone else had doused themselves in gasoline. Um, law enforcement officers knew about it, were instructed not to tase them, tase them anyway, they caught fire and died. Um, and so it has to be, it's a very fact-specific um, mandate um, that attaches when a law enforcement or public official claims qualified immunity. And it is virtually impossible um, for a victim or a family of victim to find that specific case um, that happened in the exact same way in order to prove that that law enforcement should have 
law enforcement officer should have known that their their actions violated that person's constitutional rights. And as I mentioned before, oftentimes the court might not even answer the case, the question of whether or not a constitutional violation occurred. And so there, there it doesn't create any precedent and it, and it makes a really an insurmountable barrier for victims and, and the families of victims because finding that exact case is often impossible because, you know, everything, um, oftentimes it does not happen the same way. It could be that, you know, um, instead of someone tasing them, it was a gunshot. Instead of them being doused in gasoline, they were doused in some other like flammable liquid. Um, and that would change the facts of the case enough that qualified immunity would attach. Um, and so, and so that's just a, like a little bit of, of what that barrier is and really how insurmountable it is. And then to note that like bringing a civil rights lawsuit is expensive. We know that qualified immunity is used primarily by police and correctional officers and the people most directly impacted by police and correctional officers are black and brown people um, with low income backgrounds who can't afford the resources needed to actually bring um, civil suits. Um, and so when they do, that's already a barrier that they had to overcome and now qualified immunity presents an additional barrier. Uh, Luki, this uh, you uh, emailed me uh, uh, about an incident that took place at the Green Correctional Facility. Tell me how this case would be impacted if there were no more qualified immunity. Well, this case specifically, um, the culture of policing would change within facilities, especially within um, prisons as they have been used um, where most qualified immunity cases have actually been used are by correctional officers. And that's due to the overall ability for them to violate people's rights and get away with it. And the fact that it has been used routinely and this kind of becoming the norm. I can personally contest that in every, I'm someone who is formerly incarcerated and in every juvenile facility that I've been in, every correctional facility I've been in and in every county jail I've been in, there is um, a, a group of individuals known as a beat up squad, which is a group of officers that would literally assault individuals, even if the incident is not even a violent situation, or even if people are just in the premises of an, a situation, they would be assaulted as well by these officers. And it happens routinely. So just by passing this bill, we can possibly change the overall culture of police and stop something like this from happening again. But even in this specific case, it would allow for the person who this has happened to, to be able to litigate it and really seek for um, justice and, and accountability in an easier manner other than the federal blocks that exist within the current um, pursuit to remedy through qualified and, and because of qualified immunity. Kelly, I'm assuming there's been pushback from police uh, unions, corrections unions. So there has been uh, um, a great deal of pushback. Um, a lot of folks are kind of framing this as an anti-police bill, um, as an anti-law enforcement bill. And I think one of the things that we have been mindful and have trying to get ahead of is the amount of myths that have come out around this bill. Um, we have folks saying that cops will go bankrupt 
and lose their jobs. And that is absolutely incorrect. Officers under this bill will be indemnified and the entity, the public entity would have to pay. Um, so it would be the Department of Corrections. It would be the specific police department. It would be the city really taking on um, the burden caused by this culture of impunity caused by um, civil rights violations that their officials are engaged in. Um, there have been you know, concerns raised that there would be a mass exodus of policing, of police. Um, and this is false. Um, we can look at what happened in Colorado, um, which ended qualified immunity for police officers in the middle of 2020. And fewer officers left that year after they ended qualified immunity than in the prior two years. Um, there have been arguments that there would be a flood of frivolous lawsuits or that good cops won't be able to do their jobs and make necessary, necessary split-second decisions. Um, and this is also not true um, because police officers and other public officials are afforded protections in the Constitution against frivolous lawsuits um, for reasonable mistakes and for split-second decisions. All of those protections still exist even when we end qualified immunity. There are law enforcement officials who are supportive of this bill who will name that accountability makes everyone safe. Accountability makes their jobs um, safer because you know, we know that there is significant historical distrust between law enforcement and communities that are over-policed. And a lot of that distrust comes from the reality that law enforcement officials can violate the rights up until death of the communities that they're supposed to be keeping safe um, and receive and face no consequences or face little consequences. Um, so the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is an organization of police, sheriffs, and prosecutors um, support this bill. Um, and there are there recently have been articles put out by former law enforcement officials from Albany, from Rochester, from Buffalo, naming the importance of this bill um, for keeping us all safe, naming the importance of this bill in actually creating um, systems of accountability, transparency, and safety in our city and across our state. And so it is true that there are some law enforcement officials who are antagonistic to this bill, but we are seeing um, increasing amounts of support from other law enforcement officials who recognize um, that accountability isn't a bad thing, uh, that people, especially law enforcement officers or public officials who are held, um, who have um, a great deal of power um, in making sure that we are safe and in, in in perpetuating harm against us, they are in they are in a in a position to do a significant amount of harm, and with that has to come increased responsibility, has to come increased accountability, um, and that's what ending qualified immunity is about. And and we hear even from Governor Hochul that no one should be above the law, um, and ending qualified immunity is the first a necessary step in making sure that that sentiment actually holds true. Because right now we're living in, in a state where a whole lot of people are operating above the law. And it is to the detriment um, specifically of Black, Brown, and poor communities.
Uh, Luki, can you tell tell us how the public can help to uh, get uh, this legislation passed? What should uh, interested people be doing? Well, definitely, we would suggest that individuals were to call their legislators and really suggest that they were to sign on to the unqualified immunity bill. It is very important that we as the community are speaking up as much as possible as we possibly can at this time, really encouraging our um, legislators to sign on to the bill. And if we don't have time to actually um, like, like physically call, individuals can always text GO, and QINY, I repeat, go in QINY to the number 50409. I repeat, 50409. And that's the way that you can just simply text that and it will send out a letter to your elected stacks you are in support of the bill. So there are still tons of ways to get involved, but also just being able to share the information with your family and loved ones to really inform people of what qualified immunity is, you'll be surprised on how many people really don't understand what qualified immunity is or that there is a, a movement out there to end it and the overall violation of people's rights. So that's another way that um, people in the community can really get involved by one, just um, one, speaking up for themselves, two, sharing the information, and three, if they learn um, of any story or anything like that, amplify that story with people and fix any form of mis misinformation as people may come up with mis misinformation. That was Kelly Young and Lukey Forbes of Vocal New York discussing ending qualified immunity in New York State. You're listening to Black Agenda Radio. I'm Margaret Kimberly. We now turn to a report on rezoning in Harlem. Leah Goodridge is a member of the New York City Planning Commission. She opposed the 145 Project, which was to have been located on West 145th Street and Lenox Avenue. The project was opposed by the local community board and Manhattan Borough President, yet was approved by the Planning Commission with just two commissioners objecting. As the rezoning was on the verge of a city council vote, the developer suddenly withdrew the project. We talked to Leah Goodridge about this particular project and the challenges of producing adequate and permanently affordable housing. She joins us from New York City. When this project was first announced to the public, there was a museum included, a civil rights museum. The Reverend Al Sharpton, whose House of Justice is located on what was to have been the project site, was involved. Um, I always had the feeling the museum was not real, that it was used to get buy-in for something that the community might otherwise oppose. So it's interesting. I joined the commission fairly recently um, and started attending meetings in January. And when this came across the commission, uh, and again, I have to actually preface and say, I'm one of many commissioners and I'm speaking in my own capacity. But when this came uh, you know, across the commission, the project name was actually 145 Museum for Civil Rights. And so my immediate reaction was, yes, this is great. Um, this is great news. I am a lover of black culture and black history and obviously the Harlem Renaissance. So I thought that it was great. But then as I, dug deeper and we learned more, the project was actually a one block 
span behemoth project of development that would have about 900 apartment units. Uh, and at that time, under three of 300 of them would have been at affordable rates. And then the museum was just one small part of this building. As the vote approached uh, at the planning commission, then Reverend Sharpton withdrew his uh, involvement. Is that correct? Uh, well, he with the vote happened. And I must say that as it was pitched, uh, especially during public testimony and public review, the museum was a huge benefit of the project. And that was what was pitched, even at times when the concerns of affordable housing was mentioned. It was, you know, the museum was positioned as well. This is the benefit. This is what this project was, would bring. And then the commission voted on it. And as was mentioned before, I voted against it along with one other commissioner. And then after that was when I learned that um, Reverend Sharpton pulled out of the museum. And this was from a news report. Um, it wasn't reported, you know, at the commission level. But a lot of where I get my information from, you know, and this is part of being a responsible commissioner is making sure that I'm abreast of the news. So uh, it passed um, uh, at the city planning commission. So there was it was at the city planning commission because rezoning was required in order for it to have in order for it to move forward. Correct. Right. And a lot of all, I, I wouldn't say all, but a good chunk of the proposals that come before the city planning commission have to do with housing of this matter. Um, where you're building large scale housing, where it implicates height, it obviously implicates you know, the number of units. So this was a very typical application in that sense. What was, I, I wouldn't say atypical, but what was you know, interesting about it was obviously the size. It's a very large apartment. We're talking about potentially 2000 families that would be housed here. So obviously the concerns about who it benefited came into play. And could you explain briefly what your reasons were for opposing it? But my main reason was that, and I wanna say briefly, I'm a native New Yorker. I'm from Brooklyn, but I briefly lived in Harlem right around that area. My main reason was the inadequate number at that time of affordable housing units. At the time we were looking at only about 266 of the units would have been at affordable rates. And that would have been out of 900 units. And we're talking about a very large building that would span a block. And for me, I'm a tenants rights attorney. I see the impacts of a project like this every day. People are in my office every day facing eviction um, or being pushed out. Half of my family has moved down South due to affordable you know, affordability. And so this is something that I deal with day in and day out, meaning the impacts of projects that don't have enough affordability. If I may, I want to get into some of the arguments. Some people say, well, you know, if you should just have housing and it doesn't matter whether it's affordable or not, because, you know, having something is better than a zero. And I want to say, tying that into my work, that that's not actually true. Um, what tends to happen is that when you do bring in a lot of market rate housing, meaning that it's not at affordable rates, wealthier residents are coming in, there is such a thing as secondary displacement. Um, and I want to get into how that works. You have, for example, the neighbor, the character of the neighborhood will change. 
stores, wealthier stores will come in that are more expensive, that perhaps existing residents would find, you know, difficult to pay for those prices. And then more importantly, a lot of times, and this is what I see, you have landlords who are more primed to get in wealthier residents. And so there happens to be a lot more harassment that happens, even if the apartment is rent stabilized, because they know that if they might be able to get someone out and make some improvements to that apartment and bring up the rent in a legal way, they're going to do it. And so there's a lot of secondary displacement that happens. And not even to mention the social aspect. Uh, people laughed at this article, but a couple of years ago, there was an article that came out in Harlem where, you know, there were residents calling, calling 311 because of the ice cream truck. Now, if you're a native New Yorker, ice cream trucks are, you know, sort of a staple of New York City. But that is a manifestation of where you have the character of a neighborhood changing. You might have in, increased police presence, more 311 calls for nuisance, because, again, the character of a neighborhood is changing. So all of that comes into play when we talk about community economic development. Uh, it's very important for you to, to raise that issue because we're told uh, um, some housing's better than nothing. It's always better to have something. And those, that's how the story is being reported today because the developer did make changes as the city council vote approached. The local council member, Kristen Richardson Jordan said that um, even though he added affordable apartments, it was a lot of studio apartments, a lot of one bedroom apartments, which certainly doesn't help families at all. I think for me, there were a couple of things that people should know. The one thing is that I read in a news story that the thinking around this development started five years ago. If we are talking five years and at the 11th hour, things that the community has asked for, like more affordable housing, along with the host of other things are being negotiated, this was sort of unfortunately predictable, right? Because the city council vote was to happen. That's a hard deadline. And so now that it had passed the commission, you know, it's going up for a vote. And so when you sort of start really negotiating at the 11th hour and putting in things that the community's asked for, and then, you know, there are other things, then it's, unfor it's an unfortunate thing, but sadly, it's, it's a bit predictable. Um, one of the things that a lot of the residents testified to that I took note of is they said that they felt like there was a lack of respect, that meaning that they were not engaged. Uh, the, the res um, mind you, I'll get to who was in support of the project, but the residents who opposed it, they said that, you know, they felt like there was not enough engagement, that they really hadn't heard much as they should have from the developer and that when they did, from their opinion, that it wasn't accurate. And so I think when you, one of the things to keep in mind with housing development is it's really important and crucial to center the community. You cannot rely on when you cannot rely on, okay, well, this is going to pass the, the council is going to say, you know, you don't, you know, you need to have the community buy-in. That is really central. And when you have a good chunk of the community who is skeptical, who feels like you not, you are not respecting their opinions. Um, unfortunately, this could be the result is what we're seeing. Now, I want to get quickly to the, to the arguments about 
you know, the studios and so forth. That's important. Where is this project? This project is on 145th Street. Where is close to that? A large university. So if you have a number of studios, who might be likely to live there? Students. And, you know, you might say, oh, it doesn't matter. But I think when we're talking about a community and what's beneficial for some residents, it does matter. It could mean more transient people. Uh, that could mean a lot of parties. That could mean a lot of noise. That, that could just simply mean when you have people who are more tied to the community, when you have transient folks who are there for a year, two years, they're leaving, it's a different ballgame. And so I think a lot of the longtime community residents are well aware of that. And that's a big part of why they express concerns. And uh, so now the, um, the project uh, as presented is gone, but uh, the developer still owns the property. And now it appears there will be a storage site and condos. Is that correct? It, that's what I read in a news story. I say it's, it is really unfortunate. I felt like for me personally, I felt like the the change from less than 30% to 50% affordable housing was a, an extremely positive change. And for me, that was my, that was my biggest caveat, or I should say caveat, but that was the biggest challenge for me with this project. I felt like there should have been more affordable housing. And once it went to 50, that, you know, we're playing ball. But the problem is when it happens at the 11th hour and there are a lot of other questions and there's already a lack of trust with the community. Unfortunately, as I said before, this is predictable yeah. and it's unfortunate, but this is predictable. And uh, you, you point out that this project had been on the drawing board for some years. And, and of course you can't have trust when the thing you've been asking for that apparently you were told you couldn't have, then suddenly you get it, then obviously you can't you can't believe in any of it. Even if it's some of what you wanted, it's, it's basically, it's too late. I guess I could sum up that way. You know, and I think part of it too is that let's let's examine Harlem, right? Let's examine Harlem. I'm a longtime New York City resident, as I said. I'm from Brownsville. Now, Harlem is very different from Brownsville. Brownsville doesn't have as many tall buildings. Brownsville doesn't have, you know, as many luxury developments. Brownsville has not face the same level of gentrification that Harlem has. So we are talking about a neighborhood and people who live in that neighborhood who have already seen, who have already seen projects like this. They've already seen the Lenox Terrace. They've already seen this. So it's not just about the lack of trust, but it's also looking at, from their perspective, looking at history and saying, well, what exactly would this bring that is beneficial to me and that is beneficial to my neighbors, would they be able to live here? And if the answer is no, then this is what you're going to get because Harlem has already been gentrified. We're not talking about something that for them would have been new and shiny. This is what is presented as new and shiny for them has been incredibly harmful. For them, it has been a matter of, it went from you know Harlem Renaissance to all of a sudden, I can't even live here anymore. I'm being pushed out. I can't afford it anymore. I can't afford to rent. I can't afford to buy, you know? So these are sort of the factors that come into play when you have housing development. And that's why I said that it is crucial 
crucial to have community buy-in. If you could, uh, I don't know, wave a magic wand, if there was something you could do to provide the affordable housing that so many New Yorkers need, thinking about public policy, what would you like to see to help make that happen? A couple of things. I think the first is amplification of information. So one of the things I'll say, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Leah from Brooklyn. Brooklyn is spelled B-K-L-Y-N. And I try to alleviate that by providing more information about what's going on in certain projects. Uh, And so a lot of times people don't even know what's going on. So in order to do something about it, you have to be aware of it. So the first thing is awareness, increasing awareness. The second part in terms of the more substantive matter of affordable housing is for really the earnest conversations and the negotiations to begin earlier on, right? I want to say, and I should, I should say, I've been talking a lot about the residents who opposed it. Now, who were the residents who were in support of it? They, they are unions. They're local unions, construction unions. They're unions who would benefit. And I don't, I don't disagree with them. Of course, they would benefit. Of course, they would bring jobs. But what is that a symptom of? That is uh, a Sophie's choice of jobs or affordable housing. And it shouldn't be that way. There should be both. Because, you know, if this were a community, as in a lot of other communities in New York City, where you where it was a wealth, a more affluent community, then you probably would have people who would come out on board for both. But, you know, you're facing folks, especially in the middle of a pandemic, um, who do need jobs. They do need those jobs. And so if it's going to benefit them in one area of their life, of course, they're going to come out and testify to it. But we need to understand and we need to look at this as really a 360 view. It's not just about the job. If you have the job and the job only pays you a a medium salary, you can't afford the apartment. You can't live there. So those are the kinds of things that we need to really consider. We also need to consider the quality of life. Some people laughed about it, but the sub the 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 amount of people that a project would bring in in a subway station, I think that that is an important point to bring up. Now, for me personally, I'm a housing rights attorney, so I think that as much housing that we can fit in, I think that we should go that route. But we also need to look at quality of life as well. We can't ignore that, and so we need to look at if we're bringing in an influx of people. You know, how will that, how, what are the various ways that that's going to impact that particular community? And if there's a way to alleviate it, then let's do it. The other problem I have with, uh, and I understand uh, you're talking about construction jobs, those are temporary. So while a project is being built, someone benefits, and I'm certainly not going to sneer about uh, people wanting jobs, but then you have a project that if it doesn't benefit others, it is, as, as to your point, a, a Sophie's Choice, where right. a, a small group of people benefit for a short period of time, but an entire community uh, may be worse off. And I want to just describe a little bit about how the sauce is made here, because this is something that I learned I didn't know. When you have projects like these, most times developers will talk with unions. They will have, it's not just that they randomly come and support developers will speak 
directly with unions and get their support and their buy-in. And so they come and testify. And that's something I didn't know before joining the commission. Um, sometimes uh, I'm not sure that it was done in this particular instance, but there are certainly other times when a union being a good union will ask, okay, well, we want a little something on paper to say that you actually are going to provide a number of jobs that would benefit our union. Uh, so again, I think it is important to bring jobs to the community, but if it is coming at the expense of affordable housing, that's a problem. If the housing that's coming in as a lot, as, as I said before, again, people make the argument that, well, it doesn't matter because it would have been nothing. And as long as you have housing there, it'll alleviate things. I'm telling you now, it's not that simple. There are a couple of reasons why, as I'll dig into, you know, again, there is secondary displacement. There is, once you have wealthier individuals coming in, that community changes in the sense that, and we haven't even mentioned race. I mean, we're only talking about income, but we haven't really even mentioned the racial dynamics of this as well. Because like I said before, you have increased police presence, you have increased calls to 311 over things that are, you know, the ice cream truck, the noise, those are things that are staples in New York City community. And then you have increased um, push outs, increased displacements, increased, you know, harassment to push tenants out so that those apartments can be renovated and wealthier people can come in. So these are things to keep in mind. It would be nice if it was just a zero and things weren't affected. But the problem is sometimes it ends up, and a lot of times it ends up as a negative. That was Leah Goodridge in New York City reporting on real estate development and housing policy. You're listening to Black Agenda Radio. I'm Margaret Kimberly. Next, we speak to Gonzalo Mercado, Director of Transnational Programs at the National Day Laborer Organizing Network, ENDLON, which is among the convening organizations for the People's Summit for Democracy, taking place in Los Angeles from June 8th through 10th. The People's Summit is a counter to the Summit of the Americas, which this year is hosted by the U.S., but which excludes Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Justice for working people and ensuring legal rights for immigrant workers is one of the demands of the People's Summit. Gonzalo Mercado joins us from New York. Yeah, so Andelon is a network of um, uh, worker centers and uh, corners uh, of day laborers, immigrant workers, uh, who started, you know, uh, in the in the late '90s. Uh, and right now gathers around 70 organizations uh, and worker centers in over 70, uh, I'm sorry, in, in, in over 25 states in the country. Um, and our, our role is, you know, we work in the intersection of labor rights and migrant rights uh, and everything that derives out of that. Um, as we all know, you know, the plight of migrant workers in the United States uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long history and, you know, obviously right now, even after a pandemic, uh, we have not seen not only um, the, our demands being met uh, for inclusion, for regularization and to, for right to organize and many things, but also uh, we have, uh, um, you know, seen so many other issues happening. And I think bringing our experience uh, to the people's uh, a summit for democracy alongside 200 other organizations in different areas 
uh, is I think the, the importance of this convening that uh, we beyond not only immigrant rights struggles, you know, we have so many other ones. And I think these are the values that bring us together. So day laborers, I, I think of uh, a day laborer as someone who uh, literally looks for a different job every day. They may go to a certain site or go to a certain store and wait for someone to employ them for the day. Is that a, a correct concept of a day laborer? That's correct. Yeah. And, and that's uh, uh, basically how many uh, migrant people uh, in the country find their jobs. That can be, you know, a construction job, can be a house cleaning job. It could be a landscaping job. Um, and it really serves the need of local communities. Uh, most of the employers of, uh, of uh, worker centers, day labor centers are members of the community. Uh, and small contractors. Um, so not only it's a way uh, for people who have to flee their countries cross borders uh, in order to make a better life for themselves and their family uh, to find their first jobs in many, in many pla uh, places. Uh, and, and it is a phenomenon that is not new that has been happening for, for many, many years. And uh, through the, the work of the network and the member organizations, uh, we try uh, as much as we can to bring justice and dignity uh, to, um, to the day labor community. You mentioned the issue of immigration and the fact that people feel forced to leave their homelands. Uh, this uh, issue of immigration is something that should be taken up at the summit for the Americas, except the United States, instead of acting as a gracious host, it's treating it as its personal summit and excluding countries it does not like. What would you like to see uh, discussed at the summit uh, for the Americas? Uh, what would you like to see the, all of the nations of the hemisphere discussing that would keep people from uh, feeling like they have to leave their, their homelands in order to survive? Uh, well, you know, that's a, it's a, you know, as you said, a, a very a unilateral uh, a way of trying to do work, as you said, in Latin America. And we have a very long history of U.S. intervention in the region. Uh, personally, you know, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant from Chile. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, as we all know, the U.S. government and the CIA uh, are very, were very involved in the toppling of the democratically uh, elected government of Salvador Allende, installing a brutal dictatorship uh, that not only uh, uh, killed and tortured thousands of people in, in Chile, but also inserted an economic model uh, that Chileans are still um, uh, grappling with. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously we have different examples of this type of interventions in Latin America, which are the structural causes of migration, which are rarely mentioned whenever we hear from these or other governments talk about shared cooperation around migration, which basically means arming this government and these corrupt militaries and police departments to basically um, uh, 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 harden borders and absolutely do nothing to facilitate uh, the movement of people. And uh, especially when these conditions and this uh, situation has been caused uh, by the U.S. foreign policy. Uh, so, so we would like to see uh, a talk about the structural causes of migration, uh, the, the historic U.S. intervention, and other countries, you know, through uh, transnational extraction 
uh, and businesses going to in and 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 to 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 countries in Latin America, taking the land from indigenous communities, uh, talking about uh, the power relationships and the power imbalances, and how the elites and the government are the ones who run basically what we call quote unquote democracy in Latin America. Uh, also, the fact that labor rights should not stop at the border, and I think that's something that. Uh, with our work in uh, doing transnational work in, in, in Central America and in South America, we've realized that we're all fighting for the same rights to organize to a minimum wage, uh, uh, to self-determination, uh, and the importance of being connected with other worker movements uh, across, the, across, the, across the continent. Uh, and the other piece is transparency. Uh, we want to know every time that this government announces, uh, like for example, we heard last year, President Biden uh, talking about the partnership for Central America and a series of investments uh, that uh, for, uh, according to our, our partners in the region, you know, it rarely gets to anyone uh, uh, and really affects. So these are some of the uh, things that we would like to see. And that's why we're having our own um, uh, uh, space uh, to make sure that we bring from a multi of spaces uh, from uh, not only worker rights organization, but women organization, trans, intersex, queer, gender non-conforming people uh, talking about ending racist police violence and mass incarceration and how does that manifest in the rest of the countries uh, in the hemisphere. So these and many other issues are the ones that we hope uh, to bring to the table and to make sure that we also come out uh, with specific uh, uh, plans uh, to address them. You know, we've seen this phenomena uh, uh, again in history and obviously right now with um, uh, people might not congregate on, on, a, on a corner per se, but they're still doing uh, day, day work. Uh, and we see in all migrant communities in New York City, uh, sometimes they have their own employers and their phone numbers, so they don't necessarily have to go to a corner. Uh, but I would say that uh, you know it, it is it is a reality and it manifests in different ways uh, uh, in different communities, but it's not uh, a thing only of the Latino community. Obviously, they are more uh, visible because they are the ones uh, who uh, stand on corners to look for work. Um, and in Brooklyn, for example, uh, we find that there are at least prior to the pandemic uh, over twenty corners where workers would congregate by trade. Uh, so again, it, it evolves and it, and it moves according not only of the of the communities uh, who are access, accessing work through that uh, way, uh, but also of the opportunities and the economies of the moment. Fortunately, we are not only seeing the rise of xenophobia in the United States in this past few years, uh, but also throughout Latin America. I mean, we have seen uh, the same, literally almost copied uh, uh, rhetoric against immigrants uh, in Chile, in Colombia, in many places, uh, where even in Mexico. So uh, whenever we have, for example, caravans or any other uh, uh, um, you know, way where, where we see movements of people going into, into different places. We have the example, for example, I'm sorry, of the presi former president of Chile going to the border of Venezuela uh, and inviting Venezuelans all through a political stunt, obviously, uh, to support the toppling of the, the government of Venezuela. Um, uh, and then when they got to Chile, he started deporting them. So you know we see the the that xenophobia and the and the 
um, uh, uh, fear of the other is something that politically has been used uh, in this country since the 1800s as well, by started by the Know Nothing Party. Uh, so whenever we have economic struggles, whenever we have a pandemic, like the, the one where we have, and people's fears are um, a little bit more above than, than other times, you know, this works really well. It is not an, uh, something that is happening uh, only here. It's happening throughout Europe. It's happening in Latin America and it's happening in many other countries. So that's the important is to really make the connection, seeing who is behind this, because there's also a money to be made behind this. The business of detention and the business of immigration uh, is billions of billions of dollars. And we have um, these, you know, uh, uh, corporations behind these politicians literally salivating uh, to think what is that they're going to be uh, uh, receiving uh, to uh, building walls, building more detention centers and arming uh, these corrupt governments. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, people going throughout the hemisphere to work. Um, I think many people were surprised that many of the Haitians who gathered at the border seeking asylum to the U.S. have already been to other countries in the hemisphere, to South American countries like Chile and, and, and others. Uh, so I think that's something that uh, uh, was a surprise to many people, but uh, with your experience, I'm sure not a surprise to you. Yeah, and, and also I think that the, uh, in our work uh, uh, transnationally, I think the, the, the value of doing this in many ways is to hear from folks, for example, from Chile, from Costa Rica, uh, and from other places who were working with the Haitian communities. Uh, and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll tell us, you know, that once the, the um, uh, revolution in Chile started to happen and, you know, the jobs and the political situation started to uh, become a little bit difficult, uh, the first folks who were already uh, facing a lot of discrimination, xenophobia and racism in Chile, especially folks uh, black folks from Colombia, from Dominican Republic and Haiti uh, were the first people who started to move. Uh, so um, it wasn't a surprise for us, for example, with our partners in Costa Rica uh, to mention to us that they are seeing Haitian folks coming from Chile, you know, on their way to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, and also when we saw reports of uh, Haitian migrants at the border and the documentation that they were carrying were Chilean ID cards. Uh, that goes to show you not only that uh, incredible uh, lengths on, on how people have to go and move around in order to survive. And it's happening no matter how many walls and borders uh, uh, you put on, uh, but also how governments, instead of doing the business of, of detaining and preventing people, uh, as, as uh, we learned from our friends in Chile, their job should be documenting and facilitating uh, uh, the, the, the free movement of people because we believe that the right to migrate is a human right. Uh, and, and, and making sure that uh, we cannot ignore these conditions. And obviously in the, in the, in the concepts of, um, in the example of, of Haitian migrants, I mean, we all saw uh, the horrible images on how they, were be, uh, they are being treated at the border. Uh, and, and it's just like uh, uh, incredible uh, to, 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 to see uh, this and to have uh, US uh, government agencies like Border Patrol uh, uh, and others uh, to freely do this to uh, people who have, uh, uh, we as a country have a, a, a you know, international obligation um, in, in our refugee laws to support. 
the People Summit, what role will Enlon be playing in the uh, programming for the summit? So we have, uh, you know, obviously we'll be attending and activating all of our member organizations in the LA area. Uh, so we're hoping that a lot of uh, uh, day laborers and our allies will be attending. Uh, and also we have a delegation from Costa Rica, uh, Guatemala, I'm sorry, um, El Salvador and Honduras attending and they will be presenting in different panels. Uh, they will be talking about, you know, the situation in each of the countries uh, and also um, uh, demands uh, that they bring not only to their own governments, but also uh, to the U.S. government uh, as to what is that they're doing in Central America. And then also a, a group that we uh, accompany, the National TPS Alliance, uh, also will have a strong presence, uh, not only uh, uh, to uh, make sure that uh, TPS uh, is uh, redesignated for, El uh, for El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua, uh, but that we also uh, uh, expanded to make sure that uh, we can um, uh, include people that have been displaced by the hurricanes Eta and Iota, and uh, also the demand to grant uh, TPS for Guatemala. Uh, that's the bare minimum that this, this uh, government can do and, and President Biden can do with a stroke of a pen. Uh, but also we feel that if they really want to stabilize the nation, the first thing that they could do uh, is stabilize their diasporas and family members here in the U.S. to make sure that they're not worried about getting deported or being arrested while they're trying to sustain and support their families back home. That was Gonzalo Mercado of the National Day Laborer Organizing Network joining us from New York City. Thank you for joining this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit blackagendareport.com where you'll find a new and provocative issue every Wednesday.